Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good morning and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the seven days ahead as best we can predict. I'm Andrew Harrison. Remember, you can help us to keep going and get all our podcasts ad-free and early if you support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Up at the crack of dawn to explain the week ahead, it's Gavin Ensler. Morning, Gavin. How are you today? Good morning. I'm feeling very, very well. I've had a large coffee. Glad to hear it. So it has been a busy weekend and the top story is France and the beginning of a two-week runoff campaign between Emmanuel Macron, the centrist, and the far-right leader Marine Le Pen. Macron topped Sunday's first round of the election with 27.6% of the votes and Le Pen on 23.4, both of which are higher scores than in the same race in 2017. Gavin, it feels like France has been flirting with a far-right presidency for decades now. Could it happen this time? Yes, it could. I think the, I mean, the key will be where do the votes for the person who came in third? Mélenchon, he got just over twenty percent. Where will they go? He said, "Whatever you do, don't vote for Le Pen." But mm-hmm. he did not say he did not say vote for Macron. So if they stay at home and the Zemmour votes will presumably go to Le Pen, it is possible. I have to say that my French friends who are not Le Pen supporters have been saying for years. It could happen this time. It could happen this time. I hope they they, they just uh, cry wolf and the wolf doesn't appear. But it is possible that Le Pen could win if the French electorate decide that rather like the American electorate, they just want a bit of entertainment or something. I don't know. We'll see. It's a yeah, couple, yeah. couple of weeks and everything to play for. I mean, Le Pen, the sort of secret of the success of the campaign really was that she managed to disavow her closeness with Putin over the years, even though her election leaflets actually had her shaking hands with Putin and had to be hastily pulped. She also kind of attacked the idea of of, of the of the party as, as purely racist. But she, I mean, she posed for a selfie with a smiling teenager in a Muslim headscarf. Has she managed to successfully detoxify herself, do you think? Well, obviously, for some people, she, she may have done. I do find it odd, though, that the simply pulping pictures of you shaking hands and having a big smiley face with uh, with Putin somehow detoxifies you. I mean, what kind of person would, would suddenly believe that just because you pulp the pictures, it didn't happen or it's not mm. important? And detoxifying the far right in France is is obviously going to be fairly difficult. She had a tricky thing to do, which was to position herself somehow between the centre-right of French politics and Zemmour, who was kind of outflanking her on the even more extreme right. So she has done reasonably well. But whether that is as high as she will go is is obviously the question that everybody in France is asking. Did the presence of Zemmour on that extreme right allow her to kind of present herself as a moderate simply by not being him, if you see what I mean. The, the, you know, the kind of the comparison factor when you've got something very extreme on the ballot paper. I think that is true. And we've seen it in, in British politics as well. I mean, the presence of Nigel Farage on the far right of British politics has allowed people within the Conservative Party, many of them to move further to the right than the mainstream used to be, as, we, as we've seen. So yeah, I think that has certainly helped her, actually. What would a Le Pen presidency look like for France? What would it mean? 
Well, it would mean another victory for Putin, it seems to me, because she would be undoubtedly his favorite candidate. And one of the things that you know has been classic part of Russian foreign policy, I've talked to lots of people who know much more about Russia than me, has been to deny that the European Union really has any legitimacy and to seek to undermine it in any way possible. And to have a Le Pen presidency, one of the two key players now in the European Union, obviously, France and Germany, to have a Le Pen presidency would be of great usefulness, it seems to me, to to Putin. Would you put your uh, spare fiver on a Frexit then? I would I wouldn't go I wouldn't go that far because even even Le Pen has to has to understand in a way that perhaps some of the Brexit patriots in Britain didn't that the economy of France is very very interdependent with the economy of the rest of Europe. I mean, let's put it this way, there are still queues of lorries at Dover trying to get to France. There aren't any queues of lorries in France trying to get to Britain. We we're on our own on that one, I think. Yeah, I'm just imagining what what a hard border I, uh, with the EU in France would look like. It would be very, very, very difficult to manage. We're talking all about Le Pen. What, what about Macron? I mean, 27.6% of the votes, a higher score than last time. You know, we in Britain don't spend anywhere near enough time looking at the leadership of, of our near neighbours. But what has his record been? And is it his own fault he's in a, a runoff with an extreme right politician? I think actually he's done rather well in the sense that no French president has been re-elected for about 20 years. He has had the best first round performance, I think, since Mitterrand in 1988. So given the turmoil that Europe has been in, that we've all been in over the past few years, I think he has done remarkably well if he is essentially saying, steady as she goes, you know, why, why throw off the captain when, it, when it's going reasonably well? So, I, I, yeah, I think, I, think, I think he is in, clearly, he's in a slightly better position than she is to win the election. The dynamic of the runoff system, this, this, this unique and unusual thing that, that, that the French have, tends to push voters towards the candidate they think might win and tends to you know, polarise the vote. Valérie Pécresse of the traditional Conservatives, Les Républicains, they got crushed on 5%. And people are now projecting an implosion, which The Guardian said would lead France in the unique position in Europe of not having a traditional mainstream right. France, as you've just described, your friends have been saying this for years, has kind of led the polarisation of politics in Europe. Is this election cementing it that you know voters just push themselves to extremes? Yeah, I mean, that is a very interesting take on the French election and the poor performance of Pécresse and the kind of traditional conservative right is clearly very, very interesting. On the other hand, I would say that the French system is able to renew itself by people who you've never heard of, like Macron, uh, we'd never heard of and never paid much attention to, coming to the fore by making arguments and breaking up the system. Whereas we have a system which is quite sclerotic and it's very, very difficult for new parties to form and for people to come without being within the straitjacket of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party. So there are certain advantages of the French system, it seems to me, in terms of new thinking, new people coming coming through. But there are obviously also dangers because some of those new people may be on the extremes. Well, speaking of sclerotic systems, back home, it's been Get Rishi weekend as the Chancellor endured a punishing weekend about his wife's tax arrangements. His family have now moved out of number 11 Downing Street. Sunak has both announced a searching investigation into the leak and he's also referred himself to the Ethics Committee. You have to be very naive, don't you, Gavin, to imagine that all this just came magically out of thin air. Has a Boris Johnson hit on Sunak been successful? I, d- I don't know, uh, uh, Dr. Watson. What do you think? I think if uh, if I were Sherlock Holmes, I would tend to look at the, the dog that didn't bark, or at least the, the, 
<laughs> the prime minister who said it, nothing to do with me. I didn't have anything whatsoever to do with it. The same weekend that I noticed that Burger King have got adverts on the sides of, of buses saying another whopper on the side of a bus <laughs> <laughs> with a picture of, of a very tasty looking hamburger. I mean, well, of course, it's possible that, uh, that Boris Johnson or his friends of Mr. Johnson have absolutely nothing to do with it. I can't imagine how few people would actually have known much about the tax affairs of Mr. Sunak and his family. And suddenly, at a moment when it might appear that Mr. Johnson is in some political trouble, Rishi Sunak is in even more trouble. The, the, the thing, though, that, that, that really strikes me is that the Sunak family, as far as I can see, have done absolutely nothing wrong. Because the problem with the British system is always that the real scandal is not what is illegal, it is what is allowed. <laughs> what has been allowed since 1799 has been for people to be non-domiciled for tax purposes, because it's something that we did during the time, during the era of slavery and the, the, the British Empire to keep rich people happy. And we're still doing it. That, to me, is the scandal. Sunak has reportedly considered resigning over this. And it's certainly his first big crisis, which he doesn't seem to have handled particularly well, his first test. Is he now completely damaged goods? I mean, are we expecting anything to happen this week apart from the, the shouting and the slow diminution and fading away of Rishi Sunak? Well, you know, we, we, we're in the week of, uh, of Easter and there have been political resurrections before within the Conservative Party. I mean, there have been people counting Boris Johnson out for quite some time too. But Sunak does seem to have been somewhat clumsy in the way he's handled it. And partly this is, I mean, we have, we have a government where people have positioned themselves so obviously to try to succeed Boris Johnson through through a series of photo opportunities to get the following day's headlines. Liz trusted it with her, you know, trying to look like Margaret Thatcher getting in a tank and, and all these sort of slightly bizarre photo opportunities. And someone persuaded Sunak it'd be a great idea to fill up somebody else's car with petrol. You know, the British public aren't stupid, although we are being taken as fools quite quite a lot. And so we tend to see through that. We tend to wonder why one of the richest families that we've ever heard of in this country in positions of power are filling up a, a supermarket worker's car just to get on the front pages. Lots of Conservative ministers were wheeled out over the weekend complaining that the criticisms of Sunak and his family were racist and sexist. This is the kind of block of opinion that tends to say you can't say anything these days without somebody calling you racist and sexist. And now they're doing a, uh, a flip reverse on it. In this kind of attempt to damage Sunak from within the kind of Johnson world, is it in danger of actually just tainting the Tory party itself, tainting the Tory brand? Because most people don't see these things in terms of the internecine feuding between different factions of conservatism. They just see the Conservative Party. Well, if you think that they are they are not like us, they are out of touch, if those are the sort of things that you think, then this will convince you that the idea that someone who is worried about the non-domicile status of his wife, who gets, I think it's £11 million a year in, in dividends from, from her father's company. Again, absolutely fine. We, you know, we, It's great that people make money out of, of, of doing clever things. But the idea that that is someone who should 
be thinking seriously about how people on very, very low budgets are going to survive the inflation, which is is hitting us all. I mean, that does seem to be a real disconnect, and it's got nothing to do with the race or the background of the of the people involved, except it's got to do with whether they are in touch with how most of us have to live. What do you think's doing for Sunak? Is it the self-serving on tax? Is it the naivety of doing it and getting caught and sort of demonstrating himself to be not a very agile politician? Or is it actually failing to support Johnson on Partygate and, you know, not cancelling national insurance rises as Johnson wanted? I'm talking about, you know, it, the belief amongst the Conservative MPs and the, and the kind of Tory sphere rather than voters here. I think it's all of the above. But I, I have to say that when the, all the dishy-rishy headlines were hitting the, the newspapers, it did strike me that the, he will come a cropper and he would come a cropper because it's a great job being a chancellor when you're giving away other people's money. It's a terrible job being a chancellor when you're taking it back in some way. And he's had to discuss, decide how to take it back through raising national insurance and other things. And that would have made him unpopular anyway in, in this time. And, and you know, those are absolutely legitimate criticisms. And it's just been made worse by all the other things and particularly the, the party loyalty thing. Because One of the things, obviously, Johnson has done is he's got rid of really quite talented people within his his own party, Dominic Grieve, David Gork, and others who disagreed with him or wouldn't absolutely follow his line. And that's something, you know, even Margaret Thatcher, who was a very tough leader, tolerated the so-called wets, the people that didn't entirely agree with her within the party. Johnson doesn't tolerate them. So the party, as, as we all remember, when the Johnson government was elected in 2019, his entire cabinet sat around like nodding dogs, all agreeing with them about Brexit and sticking up their hands and looking like sort of school children. That is the core of his attempt at discipline. Unfortunately, he himself isn't particularly disciplined. So that causes all kinds of different problems. Yeah, it's still just, I am the leader of the gang at Eaton, isn't it? That uh, is the, the guiding principle. So, I mean, is this whole this situation actually good news for Labour in that the Conservatives now don't have a plan B leader if the local elections go badly? And when you look at the polls, the latest opinion poll from over the weekend has Labour static on 38% and the Tories down two at 34 There's like, there is no Ukraine dividend. Yeah, uh, I, I think it is potentially good news for Labour because, I, I again, you know, it always struck me that if you were the leader of the Labour Party, the person you would probably most like to face leading the Conservative Party in the next election is a very, very damaged Boris Johnson, who has never been personally popular. Never. He was just less unpopular than Jeremy Corbyn in 2019 because Mr. Corbyn was hugely unpopular. So in that sense, I, I suppose it may be good news for 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 Labour. The other thing, there is one big story that's kind of behind a lot of this this week that really strikes me, which is that throughout history, for several hundred years, British governments have always had to choose how far to be attached to Europe and how far to look abroad to the colonies where they, where, where money was to be made, whereas Europe was where wars were to be fought. And what tended to happen, and it happened repeatedly, it happened in the, the 1930s with appeasement, it happened in the, after 1815 and the defeat of, of Napoleon at Waterloo, was Britain did tend to turn to other things. And, you know, the Brexit impetus was to do that. We're global Britain. We're not really attached to Europe. But what always happens in British history is we get sucked back into European conflicts because those are our neighbours. And that is exactly what is happening now and uh, in, in Ukraine. And of course, then Britain, we should, I think, congratulate the Prime Minister for going to Kiev and, and uh giving what the Ukrainians say they need, or at least a large part of it. But we are back 
being a power with a role in Europe. And there is no way around that. And so the whole sort of premise of the last five or six years about we can somehow avoid our European entanglements by getting out of the European Union, that is beginning to end, it seems to me. And that is a really big story for the future, if, if, if the analysis I've just said is right. Well, let's talk briefly about that that visit to Kiev or the beginning of the campaign for the by-election in Kiev Central or something, whatever Boris Johnson thinks he might be fighting. He visited the city reportedly in defiance of his security detail. And the day after Ursula von der Leyen and Joseph Borrell visited Butcha, Ukrainians loved the visit and have gone into, into raptures over it. They really have felt that sort of sense of solidarity. Do you think it has real significance for the war? I think it does have considerable significance. I mean, the, the whole, I did it in defiance of my security detail. I mean, give me a break. But uh, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> I'm, I'm smarter and braver than them and I'm prepared to do it. When Ursula von der Leyen was there the day before and other leaders have got, you know, it's it's, it's very odd. But it was a good thing to do. It was the right thing to do. It shows that we are, the, the United Kingdom is engaged. And so it will have some 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 impact. And I think I think we have to be reasonably fair and say that's what a British Prime Minister should have done. And he has done it. And it is, uh, yeah, it was a photo opportunity too. And he will get some credit for it. It's quite well-timed, though, in the middle of Partygate to make Sunak look trivial. Yeah, it is. I mean, Boris Johnson's always been very, very good at the politics of distraction and about uh, uh, commanding the next day's headlines because he's a very, very shrewd tactical thinker. What do I have to do to be in the news tomorrow when you know my opponents are, are, are being done down for various reasons? So he's, he's very smart at that. What he's not very good at, and it's not just me thinks it, there's a, quite a lot of civil servants think it, is a kind of strategic thinking where are we actually going with this? And it's clear that uh, at least the Ukraine conflict has allowed a degree of clarity to descend upon the Johnson administration that we have to back these people because in a way, this is our front line too. Meanwhile, Russia is reorganising its military with a new general, Alexander Dvornikov, who is infamous for atrocities against civilians in Syria, and also a new focus on the east of Ukraine and the Donbass. The consensus seems to be that Putin's looking for something that he can call a victory before the traditional May Day parades. What are you expecting to develop in the next week or so? Well, I accept that I got it wrong right at the start. I thought when Putin massed his forces, all he was going to do was take another bite, and that other bite would be the Donbass. I, I had no idea that he was going to get involved in attacking on several fronts at once and and that it would be such a disaster for him. So with that kind of degree of considerable humility, I would say that it does look as if he's gone back to something which is achievable, uh, potentially achievable, which is to take another bite out of the Donbass region. However, things have changed dramatically, as we all know, in the last couple of months. I mean, the best Ukrainian troops, we are told, are supposed to be on that front line and rather like a sort of World War One trench system. Now, if, if it's not the best Ukrainian troops that have been fighting the Russians so far, they have done an amazing mm. job. So maybe maybe Putin will declare victory. And I'm, I'm sure that seems to be part of the, of, of the plan. But whether anybody else believes it, I think what we're in for, unfortunately, is just months and perhaps years of conflict. We are perhaps in for the best case, something like the divisions between South Korea and North Korea, kind of demilitarized zone, which isn't all that demilitarized, but it may shift in time. Who, who knows exactly? The only other thing I would say is there must come a time, surely, when those families of the conscripts who are being waved off now to be killed in, in Ukraine 
when they somehow wake up, either because the bodies come home or because their sons come home and say, you won't believe this, but the Ukrainians actually live better than we do. Presumably, that will have some kind of political impact back in Russia, but that might take months too. Well, we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. We're not military strategists, but these are some of the things that we're going to be looking out for this week. Gavin Esler, thanks for getting up early to talk about them. Thank you very much. Listeners, that's the end of Start Your Week. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it useful. Don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to support us. We'll be back tomorrow with the weekly panel show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Bunker Daily was presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Esler. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.